How much does registration for this thing? Okay, you're how much, Ryan, how much was... How much was registration for this thing? It's unbelievable. I mean, it's like lunch, breakfast, lunch. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I, uh, these guys are doing a great job. And, uh, and the energy here is just terrific. I, uh, I wish I could visit with you guys I, uh, more. I mean, it's, uh, we're really having a great time. I, uh, and I got your notes. Right? And Katie spilled something on my notes. I always, I always say, yeah, if you, if you want to see uh, how... Uh, Serene somebody is, let a newcomer spill a cup of coffee on their big book, you know, and see how they do. Yeah, but uh, Mark used to say, I can't stay sober, I can't live off of food I ate last week, and I can't stay sober off a of spiritual experience I had 25 years ago. We're, we're talking about current work, staying in this stuff. But, you know, it's, it's so fun. I, I, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but, you know, when we talk about taking a technical approach to this book. One of my favorite stories is our buddy from Indianapolis, Gary B. And they were in Denver. That's a big, way up the chain in my lineage of sponsorship. Mark was my sponsor, and then Don Pritz sponsored Mark. Gary B. sponsored Pritz. Uh, Paul uh, Martin sponsored Gary. And then above him was Tom Powers and then uh, Bill Wilson. And, uh, and But in a, that lineage... What happened with Gary and this group of people in Denver was one time this guy named Mac Cheater came down from uh, Canada and did a big book workshop in, in their town. And Gary and them came up with the idea. They said, what would happen if we got that book out and we went and started going through the book and looking whenever there was an action indicated, we took that action. If it said pray, we pray. If it says think, we think. If it says write, we write. And there was 14 of them that sat down. This is, Gary's got over 50 years of sobriety now. It's the coolest chip I've ever seen. We were at his 50th birthday, and he got a chip that just had an L on it, you know, for for 50 years. And I was like, whoa, I want to get me one of them, you know. And, uh, but at, of this group of people, there was 14 of them that went through that exercise together. And of that 14, one guy relapsed, went out and... Uh, relapsed and died in a snowstorm, sleeping in a doorway in a snowstorm. The other 13 people either are still sober or died sober. I mean, that's, that was the effect of, of a group of people taking a technical approach to this step. You know, So I'm always looking at what are they trying to say? What are we trying to say? And, and you know, one of the things I like to do after a break, what we're really looking for in the fourth step is, you remember this guy that I've said is asking me fair questions like, you know, um, what do you mean by that, and what do you want me to do? And I, and I always picture this guy in, when we get into the fourth step saying, okay, okay, you're telling me that self is what's killing me. I don't get it. What am I supposed to be looking for? I don't know what self means. And so that's what it says in there. It says, it's funny because like, it's, like Katie was saying, on 60 it says the first requirement is that I be convinced that any life run on self. And then when we get to 64, it says, being convinced that self showing up in various ways is what had defeated me, we considered common manifestations of self. It changes the whole focus of the, of the inventory process for me in that we're saying, okay, if you're telling me self is the problem, I don't get it. And we go, well, let's look at some common manifestations of self. And one of the, the, the first one they look at is resentment. You know, it says resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else, even alcohol.
Resentment destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And then, so when he, as we start going through the work, I'm going to talk about this, the couple of inventories, but it's, it's lunchtime and everybody's blood's in their stomach right now. So uh, if we're not going to all be nodding out like we're on methadone, I, uh, I, like, I like to tell a couple of funny stories. And, and, you know, and because when you start looking at manifestations of self, it's everywhere, and it's all over me. And, and I mean, in the first place that self becomes obvious is in others. You know, my God, can we spot it in others? You know, now me, I'm blind to it. Uh, I, I mean, it's amazing to me how many times a sponsee can call me up and he tells me, and I'm just all over it. I can just see self all over the tenth step he's doing with me. And then I'll get wrapped around the axle and call Myers, and he hands it right back to me, just like I've been handing out to these guys. And you just go, Oh my God, how can I be that asleep? I mean, how can I not see it? Because I can't, I'm blind to self in myself. I was talking during the break, somebody said, in the first step, we're not trying to, we're not trying to convince the guy that he's got a problem. We're trying to convince him he doesn't have an answer. You know, and then when we get into the third step, it, it, the problem is self, but I can't get over self myself, and I can't quit playing God without God. I can't just make a decision to be less selfish. So, so we, we, but when we start, you know, and, and as we start going through this, there's some great examples of, of, but, you know, when I first start looking for self, I don't see much, you know, and, so, and I think about sometimes like this bird watcher. If, if, if I went out into the woods out here, and it's gorgeous outside today. I'm, you guys are my heroes for being in here on a Saturday afternoon. It's always better for a conference if, if it rains, you know. But, but if I go out into the woods, I might hear a couple of birds. I might see a couple of birds and something like that, you know. But, you know, and that's what I see when I go out there. But if I go out there with a trained bird watcher, they might hear... They might hear 30 different kinds of birds and see 11 different kinds because they know what they're looking for. And it's the same way when we start looking for self, I start seeing more and more ways that it manifests. And, and I'm like, there's some funny examples, but one of my, one of my favorite uh, examples of, of uh, manifestation of self is what we call story stealing. And, uh, and you'll have some fun with this in your AA group. Uh, um, story stealing is where... Let's say Dave comes up and he starts telling me a story about something he's got going on, but his and his story reminds me of one of my stories, right? And my story is way more interesting than his story. So I come over the top of his story, and and and, and I, I didn't realize I did it. You know, I, when I say I'm some of Katie's best work, uh, she she gives me a lot of awareness. She's very generous with her input sometimes, and. Uh, and one time we were, at a, we were at a party, and I didn't know it, but this guy comes up and he goes, hey, Charlie, how's it going? I go, hey, what's up, man? And he goes, hey, I'm getting ready to go to Costa Rica. And I go, Costa Rica? Oh, dude, I've been to Costa Rica three times. I go, one time I went down, there was 10 of us. We went down there all together as a group. We stayed at this place called Melia Cariadia. It was this amazing country club. We, we played golf. We rode dirt bikes through the coffee plantations. We went whitewater rafting. We went down to the beach. I mean, oh, my God, you're going to love Costa Rica. And, and then I just turn around and I walk off. Right? <laughs> And, and and I leave Katie standing there, and and she, you know, and she he, she's like, I'll listen to your Costa Rica. I mean, but he didn't get to tell his story because I stole it. 
And and oh my God, it, it is rampant in my family. In my family, you talk, it's a story stealing festival every time we get together because you can't get four words out that it doesn't remind one of us of something that happened to me or my or my wife or her family or my friend. You know, so it's always like oh, you know. And then uh, so there, that's story stealing, right? So keep keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. Now the first cousin of story stealing is what I call having your hand up while somebody's talking. And, and I didn't know I did that one either. I'm just so grateful for all this awareness. I, uh, having my 13-year-old daughter, when she was 13, she pointed this one out to me. She was at a, at a retreat, and they talked about having your hand up is somebody might be telling me a story. Now, I don't interrupt them, but I've already thought about what I'm going to say, and I might as well be sitting there going, waiting for them to finish so I can come in with what I'm going to say. So having your hand up is the first cousin to story stealing. And one time, Katie and I were sitting at the corner of the table. I sit at the end of the table during the meeting. I do a lot of my spiritual work. And it's just where I sit. In the, it's in the middle of the house. And, and uh, we live up on a ridge. We, we got super lucky with this house. It's right in the middle of Austin. But there's a valley behind us and a big canyon going that way. So we have a view in both directions. So if you sit right here, I can see both ways. I was sitting there one time, and Katie was talking to me, and uh, and she's talking about something, and she goes, uh, "Put your put your hand down, honey. I'm I'm not through talking." And and I didn't realize that I had my hand up, you know, it, it, but but when she said that, I went. Because I didn't even know it, but I had already drawn in air so that if she left a gap, I could I could come in there, you know. You know, because so, I've already thought of what I'm going to say. And, and as soon as she's I'm going to go, yeah, well, you know, one time I was, you know, and, and so, I mean, it's, so having your hand up, story stealing our first cousins. And so, and, and so when, we, when we start talking about this stuff, we start seeing more and more examples of how selfish and self-centered I am. And I don't understand how I drive people crazy. You know, I mean, when we start moving, that we were, uh, that, that workshop that I did in Idaho, was a men's retreat, and I went there. And I took a sponsor with me, and uh, and, was, and so we went. We had about an hour and a half ride over from the Salt Lake City Airport over to this place. And when I got about an hour and a half with somebody, the most effective thing I could do to maybe get some movement out of that guy is pages 60 to 63 and a new understanding of selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, that's what we're going to talk about. Where are you at with this stuff? And so we talk about it all the way over from Salt Lake City to there. Now, this was a good crew of guys. What these guys did was they every Friday afternoon, they would uh, get guys over to the house. They'd cook lunch. They'd feed them and then knock the heck out of them with the big book. You know, I mean, it was—it's a solid plan. You know, and, and you know, and so they every every Friday afternoon they'd gather up over there and they'd eat and they'd talk about you know AA stuff. So we're sitting there, and I've known this guy's sponsor a long time, and and but the, Brian was the guy that that gave us a ride from the airport over there. And so when we get over there, we're sitting around just after lunch. We're not really having a meeting yet, but we're talking like guys do, and uh, and I'm listening. And uh, and uh, he starts talking about all these ex-wives, you know, and, he, and he's and he's saying, you know, my my first wife, oh my God, she was nuts. I mean, my she, my first wife was crazy, you know, and this and that. And he's telling this story. Now, I'm going to speed it up a little bit. And my second wife, oh my God, you know, and she was she just whack, you know. And he and he tells me you know, the the breakup was horrible and all that stuff. He goes, now this chick I just broke up with. About four months ago, oh, my God, you know, he's like, she's riding on the hood of the car, holding on to the windshield wipers and stuff like that. And, you know, and I'm listening, and when we talk about being in the entirely different angle business, 
I'm listening, and, and I, I go, uh, I'm listening to all these stories, and I go, Brian, you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And he goes, no, no, go ahead. And I go, how do you find yourself in relationship with all these crazy women? And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, I mean, were they crazy when you met them? Or is it possible that the only... <laughs> now listen to this, this is heavy stuff. I said, or is it possible that the only difference between the way they were when you met them and the way they were when you broke up with them was the effect of spending this amount of time with somebody as selfish and self-centered as you are? And his sponsor sit behind him and his sponsor goes, say that again. <laughs> you know? And I said, well, I mean, because we don't, we, I like to think that my problems are coming at me, and I don't like to spend any time thinking about my relationship and a relationship. We start off over here at A, and A is the best dope there is. A is that infatuation period of a relationship, and that's where I love you and you love me, and, and you know, love songs make me think of you, and food is better, and the sky is bluer, and the only thing we ever argue about is who loves each other more, and, you know, you, you, ever, you ever been around that? You know, and then, and then over a period of time, a selfish and thoughtless and inconsiderate behavior, I move it from A over here to B. And B I can do without, right? B is we're fighting all the time and, and you're coming at me all the time and it's, and it's just awful. And that, so what I do is I jettison B and I go out and find me another A. And a little while later I wind up back over at B and I'm never spending, this is me in those marriages. And, you know, and, and, and I don't spend any time thinking about what I did to move it from A to B. I just go out and get another A. But when we start looking at what happened in here, now we're starting to see where my problems really are of my own making. And, and, and it, what if my outward conditions are a demonstration of my inner condition? And, and, and it, it, so it becomes an inward job. And I mean, it just blows open what we look at. You know, I mean, because now I was talking to somebody during the break saying now my, my, my whole recovery vision is exploded because now it's not just drink, don't drink. It's, it's, there's this whole arena between there, you know, and the bedevilments are in here somewhere, but I'm just trying not to go back and live in those bedevilments, and I'm looking at the way I show up and the way people experience me and what it's like to work for me. What's it like to be married to me? What's it like to be my friend? What's it like to be my sister? That sort of thing, and, and all of a sudden, we got a big picture to look at, you know, and we're seeing manifestations of self all over the place. I mean, one time... I walk into the AA club. There's this AA club that I've been going to. It looks like a country club. It was a long story in Austin, but we had an AA club that the highway department wanted to land, and they gave us this piece of land, and 23 people in Austin signed a mortgage to build this building on this property. It's really awesome. But I, was, I walk in there one day, and they got the AA on the left and the Al-Anon on the right and the half-measures room in the middle and, and, uh, and, and, and a little card room in the back. And I used to hang out at this club a lot, you know. And, uh, and I walk in there one day. I'll never forget it. There's this guy, and I don't want to say what his name was, but I walk in, and this guy goes, hey, Charlie, what's up? And I go, hey, man, what's happening? And he goes, oh, it's all good. He goes, you know what? We need to go back to Vegas sometime. And I go, yeah, yeah. And I turn around and I am flipping horrified because I am 15 years sober and I have zero memory of ever being in Vegas with this guy, you know? And I mean, and the way he's saying it, I can tell we went to Vegas at some point. 
But I got nothing, you know, and I got nothing. And I, and I'm, I mean, I turn around, he's still back here, and I turn around, and I could still see the room. I could tell you the color of everything in the room, the temperature of the room, because I'm just, I'm just going to go, that's, and, but as I started searching my memory, I remembered that one time there was a trip where four of us went to Vegas, and we gambled, and we played golf, and we went to shows, and we did all this stuff. But the reason I didn't remember being in Vegas with this guy was because I wasn't in Vegas with this guy. I was in Vegas with me. Bob Bazans talks about his sponsor one time, goes, Bob, you know those shadowy figures out there? And he goes, yeah, and he goes, those are people. <laughs> He's like, they have lives of their own and concerns and thoughts and worries. You're like, what? You know, but because, I mean, I, I, so that's the level of self-centeredness that I carry around at 15 years, you know? And, and so we're, this is where I'm going with my sponsees all the time and manifestations of self and how it shows up and how it presents. That boy, Chris, uh, the one that said he, he didn't have these, this level of selfishness that we talked about, one time at the Thursday night meeting, the common solution meeting at my house, we, we eat. We eat at 6, we meet at 6.45. And, and, uh, and, we, and it's really, we've been doing it for... I don't know, over 13, 14 years probably, and, uh, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really awesome. But one time, one of the boys had driven through Louisiana, and he, he brought back some andouille sausage with him. And uh, so this night, we're going to have andouille sausage and red beans and rice, and I think we had some boudin sausage, and it was a big night at the house. And, uh, and so we're sitting there. Now, Chris is the guy I was telling you about from the playpen, right? Remember, you remember that one? You know, and so we're sitting in the kitchen, and when I say I love this guy, you're going to see why. We've got an island in the kitchen that has the cooktop in it. And so i got all the andouille sausage in there steaming. And, and, and so when, I, when it's finally done, I take the lid off this big pot, and steam boils up like this. And as soon as the steam clears, Chris is standing there with his plate like this. And, and I look down, and I go, Chris, you don't get a whole, the, there are some sponsors, you, you, you become intuitive with your sponsors. There, there are some sponsors that I would never yell at, that you have to be gentle and kind with, and that sort of thing. Then there's some guys that you can't take your foot off their throat for a second, you know, and, and, and that's the way Chris is. I just, you know, I'm just, it's just, we're just pounding, 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 and, and, uh, and he loves it, you know, but, but uh, you know, you know. But I mean, but he's standing there with his plate, and I go, Chris, you don't get a whole link, dude. I go, look in that pot. I go, how many links of sausage? You, they're about this long. I go, how many links of sausage do you see in that pot? And he goes, nine. And I go, and how many men do you see in this kitchen? And he goes, one. <laughs> I mean, how do you not love that guy? You know, I mean, I was, it's like I want, I want to just go, oh, just take a whole link, you know, for God's sake, you know what I mean? But, but it's just like. When we start seeing that level of selfishness and self-centeredness all over it, it's like, you know, Mark used to say, how free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? And we keep looking at this stuff and going over it. And, and um, I loved what Katie said about that we're on a fact-finding and a fact-facing mission. And there's a lot of in what she said about now that I, I really feel like over on 64, it says... We're on a fact-finding and fact-facing mission. I used to think my job when I was listening to a guy's inventory was to sit there and listen to him read his fourth step to me. I've changed my thought on that now because now I think my job is the fact-finding and his job is the fact-facing. Because if I can't see self in myself, he can't see it in him either. 
So when I'm listening to it, I'm looking at I like to say I'm, for, I'm in the entirely different angle business. The whole time a guy's talking, I'm thinking, what's an entirely different angle? What's another way of looking at this? How can I point out to him how selfish and self-centered and thoughtless and that sort of thing is? And that's where we're going in his work because it says, uh, so this fact-finding and fact-facing mission, I'm going to try to cover as much as I can of this real fast, but we did the three columns. There's a lot of instructions out there on, on, uh, on writing inventory, but there's a piece on here on the bottom of page 66. Katie talked about it. I'm going to talk about it again. Um, it's what we call the sick man exercise because one time one of Katie's sponsors was called and she was mad at somebody at work and she goes, you know, I've done the sick man prayer on him and we thought that was funny, but we've been using it ever since, you know. And and so, um, it says we turn back to the list. We've we've done the, the resentment inventory, and it says if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. So this part of the work is only for those of us that want to live, and, you know. And, and it says. Um, the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. Here's a heavy one for it. One time at the, at the group, we looked up, I said, we looked up uh, brainstorm. And in the 60s, Disney would get people together and they'd come up with ideas for movies and stuff and they called it brainstorming. So for most of us, a brainstorm is like when that light bulb goes off over your head. It's a, like a bright idea, right? I looked up brainstorm in the 1936 Webster's Dictionary and it said a sudden and violent mental outburst. So they're talking about rage, you know, so it's saying, you know, rage and grouchiness are not for us. It says it might be the dubious or the doubtful luxury of most, but for us, these things are poison. We turn back to the list for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it at what? At the list from an entirely different angle. And that and right there I've written, are you? When we talk about turning statements into questions, I'll ask my guys a lot of times when I go, are you, are you willing to look at this from an entirely different angle? You know, they've just sit there and told me who they're mad at, what they did, how it affected them, and all that stuff. And I go, are you willing to look at this from an entirely different angle? And they'll go, yeah, yeah, I am. You know, it's, and so it goes, we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. And Katie's the one that pointed that to me where she's going, what dominates me? Oh, not much, really. Just the world... And it's people. Other than that, I'm cool. You know, uh, in that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. How could we escape? Listen to this. We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We couldn't wish them away any more than alcohol. So we're right back up against lack of power again. It's that same thing I was talking about. We're over and over in the book. The book says, here's the problem. Do you admit it's objectionable? Oh, by the way, you can't do a darn thing about it on your own power. You got to go to God with it. You got to get awareness, go to God. Awareness, go to God. And so it says, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a lot sicker than I am. But remember when I was talking about when you foul up, I want, I want justice. And because I don't take your actions and run them through that funnel that we were talking about of my motives and, and, and what I was trying to do. That's what you're going to hear about when I screw up. But when you screw up, I don't, I don't think of it like that. So it says we, we, we realize that they, this person, now what if this was just two people suffering from the human condition? You know, it's like if you tell me you got tuberculosis, that's a bummer, you know, and I know that's bad and I'm really sorry. But if you come up to me and say, I got tuberculosis, and I go, I've, I've got tuberculosis too. I've had it for two years. Now we're having a different conversation. 
Does that make sense? Because now we've got two people relating from the same viewpoint. And, and, and it's the same thing here where it says, what if they were sick? It says, though we didn't like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like me, were sick too. Katie said it, but you know, it doesn't say we pray for the person we resent. It's not a bad exercise. It's in the, one of the stories. But here it's saying, ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, compassion, and patience that I would grant a sick friend. You know, and, and the best example, and Mark Houston one time said, you know, in, in the, he said the fourth column. Hello, Mrs. Parker. Hello, right, nice outfit. Um, so uh, one time I was doing, we were talking about inventory with Mark, and he said the fourth column turns the second column into a lie. And I remember thinking, what does that even mean? You know, I saw the second column happen. I know what it was. I know what they did to me. And, and, it, and I didn't understand what he was talking about, but let me give you an example of it. The one, this guy has told me it's okay to talk about this. But there was this guy I was doing inventory with. His name was Roy, and uh, he's an old friend of mine. And, um, and, and what, column one, my dad. Okay, what did he do? Well, he says, when I was 12... I was sitting out on the front porch and my dad comes up and he gets out of the car and he walks by me and he says, your mom killed herself today. And then he walks on into the house. Well, it would be real easy to think how thoughtless, how, you know, you know how, how cold you have to be to be able to drop that on 12 years. And, and you could get a lot of traction with that in a lot of the rooms of AA. Right? That is not where we went with it. You know, because now I'm on a fact-finding and a fact-facing mission. And, I've, and there are times in this fact where I feel like a news reporter when I'm, when I'm interviewing this guy. Are you willing to look at this from an entirely different angle? And he goes, yeah. And so I started asking questions. And I go, okay, um, you were 12. Did you have any brothers and sisters in your house? And he says, yeah, uh, I had a sister and a brother. And how old were they? Well, we were two years apart. And where did you fall in those three kids? He says, I was the youngest. And I said, well, were your parents still together at this point? And he says, yeah. And I said, where were you living? And he said, we were in this little small town. And I said, and how was the money situation? And he goes, well, I mean, we weren't over it, but I mean, it was okay. My dad was a welder. I mean, we were, we were doing fine, you know, and that sort of thing. And I go, so let me think about this. I said, uh, so you're, you're 12. Uh, I'm guessing, and your brother, I'm guessing that your dad's in his mid to late 30s. And he goes, yeah, that, that's probably about right. I said, so now he's married to a woman that has significant mental illness. And there's been a lot of drama in the, in the family uh, leading up to this point. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of trouble. So he and now, and so, and then on this day, she has killed herself. I said, now, did you ever consider that your dad is a guy in his late thirties and given the tools he's got and the background that he comes from and whatever amount of dealings he has, he's got to leave work. He's got to come home. He's got to notify his whole family that his wife and her family that his wife has killed herself. He's got to notify all the people in this little town that his wife has committed suicide. He's got to plan a funeral. And in his spare time, he's got to figure out how he's going to make a living and raise three children as a single father. Is it possible that when he walked by you that day, the best he could possibly do was to say your mom killed herself that day? And my favorite thing to hear in the fourth column of an inventory is when they go, oh, my God. He's like, I never thought about my dad for a second 
I never gave one ounce of consideration to what he was going through. All I thought about was me and me and how could he be so mean to me. And for 40 years, I've been waiting for my father to come apologize to me. I used to borrow money from him and not pay him back because he had it coming. I'd see his car in the parking lot and I'd kick the door. I put sugar in his gas tank one time. I've been waiting 40 years for my father to come apologize to me. He says, I got to go find my dad to borrow and apologize to him. And I watched a 40-year resentment go, just like that. When Mark's talking about the fourth column turns the second column into a lie, that's what I'm talking about. When I, I can't even tell you how many times I go into this process with a, with a resentment. I get some awareness, and I come out the other end with an amends to go make. You know, we talk a lot about forgiveness. For my delusional state, I need to forgive a lot less than I think I do. You know, more times than not, I need to be going out and making amends, you know, because I'm not nearly as wronged as I think I am. Can anybody relate to that? And when we look at it from an entirely different angle, I start seeing it now. Look at how that, that little exercise, when I do inventory with somebody, I have them put a little bitty column between the third column and the fourth column for a check mark to say, I've done the sick man exercise. I've said these prayers. We ask God to help us show them tolerance, compassion, patience, that I would grant somebody that was sick. Right? And, and, th and look what happens. That little exercise moves me spiritually into a place of being able to see where I was selfish and dishonest and resentful and afraid. Right? So now I can, I can see it because of that exercise. I'm going, oh, my God, I was so selfish. And, you know, and, and there was a guy who was doing an inventory out in California, and we did his dad. And, uh, and it was amazing. He, he said, my dad was never there for me. And uh, it was, and we get to talking, you know, and his dad was always there. You know, I mean, it's like his dad worked, ran a grocery store, but every night he'd come home. And, and, I, was, and I was like, that's where we got that term black hole. Because I was like, is it possible that every day he just came home from work and there was this little black hole of emotional need pouncing on him as soon as he came through the door? I mean, is it possible he was just like going, could I just have a second? You know, I mean, because you know, when he told the story, his dad was at all his baseball games. His dad traveled with him. His dad took You know, he's like, he was never there for me. I'm like, he was always there. You know, I mean, but just not quite enough, you know. And, and, and also, you know, so he's going, oh, man, you know. And then we did his girlfriend. And then we did, you know, somebody else. And, and you know, and every, every fourth column, he's going, oh, my God. You know, I never looked at it like this. And, and after about three of them, he goes, you know, Charlie, I'm really a pretty good guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people like me, you know, and I'm like, oh, I ain't mad at you, buddy. I mean, but this is what we're trying to dig up in this fourth column because I come into this thing thinking I've been so horribly mistreated. And in, and in, this, in this process, I start seeing how selfish and thoughtless and inconsiderate. My, the reason we call it inconsiderate is because I never considered it. The reason it's thoughtless is because I never even thought about it. You know, part of, part of living a life based on selfishness and self-centeredness is I have very little awareness of my effect on other people. We're going to talk about that in the amends process. But, man, look at the work that's available in this. And, and my first resentment, I just read off who I was mad at, you know, and, and I didn't have any of this stuff that we work with. And, I mean, you talk about freedom. Now, check this out. Here's another story. Well, my sister... I used to like to say that my sister would give a woodpecker a headache after about 45 minutes, but uh, 
And I got to tell you, I hate laying that line down because that is a good line, you know. Uh, but, but really, the truth is, is I'm, my sister's okay, and I'm just intolerant and impatient around my sister. You know, she, she bugs the heck out of me, but she doesn't bug the heck out of everybody. You know, well, most people. But, uh, it's, you know, but Carol, if you hear this tape, I'm really sorry. You know, oh, my God. One time, you can't believe how these CDs get around. My sister lives way out on the West Coast in Northern California. One time she was talking to this lady at work, and we even don't understand how much these CDs get around sometimes. And one time, she, the woman at work tells her, I'm, I'm in AA. And, and my sister goes, oh, my, my brother's in AA. She's like, really? And they start, they start talking. And my sister's telling me the story. And she goes, and as they're talking, and the woman goes, wait a minute. Are you telling me your brother is Charlie P. from Austin, Texas? And she goes, yeah. And it's, it's my sister's telling me this story. I am horrified because I'm sure, I'm sure she was about to go. And then the lady goes, you're the one that would give a woodpecker a headache. You know, I mean, but, <laughs> but she didn't say that, you know, but, but, but not yet. But it has made me start looking at it differently because, um, because when we go into this sick man exercise, it says, oh, we didn't like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us. They, like me, were sick too. You know what? Everything that she does, I do. She dominates conversations. She doesn't listen that great. It's, it's rampant in our family. And, and, but the thing I did, one time I was doing spot, uh, inventory with a, a friend of ours. And, uh, and I, I did this thing on my sister and, and, and then it says we ask God to sh show, help us show them the same tolerance compassion and patience that we would grant a sick friend and this person I was doing inventory with goes talk to me about that word show and I said well I don't know and she said I see that word show as a call to action I said what do you mean and it, she said what we're saying is we ask God to help us demonstrate demonstrate was a big word with the Oxford movement and, and a demonstration is proving something out you know proving it beyond a shadow of a doubt so there's a big difference between what I realized is that I had been asking God when and say we're getting ready to have a family get-together I was asking God to help me feel tolerance and compassion and patience when we get with these people but as soon as I got you know bounced around a little bit, and I don't feel tolerant, I feel frustrated all of a sudden, well here comes, guess who's acting like a jackass at the family, it's the guy with 30 years of sobriety and God and the 12 steps in his life, you know. I, one time, we're at my mother's house, I'm a big boy, I, I, my clothes are, they need, I need big clothes, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and it's it's a gentle process, you know, and uh, and so like when I wash my shirts, I put them in the dryer just enough to get them warmed up, and then I take them out and stretch them a little bit. You know, tip for the big boys in the room: if you put your hands on your knees and do it like that, you can really put a stretch on them. But uh, but well, one day I, I wash my clothes, and then while I'm taking a shower, my sister puts them in the dryer. Right? That's her horrible offense. Right? Well, I don't know it, but when I come out, my shirts have been cooked down like a little, you know, and, you know, and, and, and so her brother is a maniac, you know, I'm like, oh, for God's sake, who put my clothes in the dry, you know, you know, this is the guy with the 12 steps and God in his life, you know, and, 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 and because I'm just being as transparent as I know how to be, but, but what I realized was that I wasn't, I wasn't asking God to help me, we're asking God to help me demonstrate tolerance, compassion, and patience, whether I feel it or not. So now we're talking about living by spiritual principles, not driven by my feelings. 
Does that make sense? It's a much deeper level of this work. So now I have to go into that thing and going, God, please help me demonstrate compassion and patience and, and help me listen and, and that sort of thing. Because, oh, my God, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to get past the resentments, honey. But it says we avoid retaliation or argument. And it means I don't retaliate or argue with them because if I do, I destroy my chance of being helpful. If there's a guy at the meeting and I argue with him or retaliate about something terrible he said in the meeting, when he's in trouble, I'm not the guy he's going to come to to ask for help because I've, I've screwed it up over, over here with the retaliation and argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot listen to this promise. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Look at the power of that sick man exercise, and I haven't seen it on one four-step guide out there anywhere. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of the work. And then we go to the fourth column. We look, putting out their minds here, nowhere in here does it say our part. It says, putting out their minds, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Where had I been? Here's that fourth column. Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened. Though a situation has not been entirely my fault, I try to disregard the other person involved entirely. The inventory was mine. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs, and we were willing to set these matters straight. So that's the end of the reason. How long have I been going? I think I could take it. Wow. I think it's fun after lunch to, to tell some stories about how self shows up. And, and, but hopefully we're wrapping all that stuff around what we're trying to do here. I, I'm going to hand it over to Katie now to take up with the fear inventory. Katie Parker, alcoholic. Well, we're rolling into the fear. And uh, <clears throat> good job, Thanks. Charlie. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, transparency is crucial. Where you choose to do it is important, right? You don't always want to go down to your, you know, open discussion meeting or home meeting and just lob out something so personal and then be shocked by the reactions you get. You know, there, there's really a time and a place. And one of the things that Charlie and I believe strongly is that in here, we have to be transparent with you. We never want to put off that we are unteachable or that we know that we are better than... Uh, it's always a very kind of a fine line there. You know, we are two people who could lose it. I don't have this thing screwed. Oh, I think I did. We are two people who could lose it anywhere. And we travel a lot. And airports, it can happen. Okay, so, I mean, you could see one of us melting down. Charlie melted down at the Sprint store. I melted down at the airport. And, and we aren't behaving well. And if you saw us, you'd be going, oh, my God, were those the facilitators? Like, yeah. Sure was. Sure was. You know, I am by no means well and perfect. Um, I, one of the things about the inventory process that I like, I've always loved this statement, is I could be either person in this play. That is what the sick man prayer is. So anytime you're upset, this was our course. Now, you get to stay as mad as you want to. You will get as blocked off from the sunlight of the spirit as you will. But trust me, this was our course. The only recall is to go to that I could be either person in this play. I know when I'm really spiritually fit, when somebody makes me mad and I immediately see that I could have done the same thing had it been me on the other side. I could be the guy behind the cash register. I could be the customer. See, I could be either person because I, remember, we're hypocrites. 
in everything. And so that's kind of where you're, you're, if you're looking at your spiritual barometer, which I'd certainly hope you know where yours is, it could be pegged out to flat. And then it could be really in a good spot. That doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. Matter of fact, life is about making mistakes. We grow when we make mistakes. I love one time uh, Cher said something on, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was back when infomercials were just a joke, before, you know, movie stars started, you know, doing infomercials. And she did an infomercial. And she said she learned more by the inf doing the infomercial than she ever learned by getting her Academy Award. Because, see, that Academy Award was the pinnacle. It was the, it was the top of the, the wave. But she learned more by the rub of life. So, so we try to act like we're low maintenance or we, we aren't really that personality. And to me, it's like that's kind of the gift in life. You know, we don't certainly want to live in the rub all the time. But it is, you know, that is the touchstone of growth is pain. Otherwise, why would we need the creator? Um, Okay, so now we're going to look at the fear inventory. This is on page uh, 67, bottom of page 67, <clears throat> where it's the last paragraph. Notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown. Now, I'll, I will tell you, I don't, I, I don't use fear strongly in the resentment inventory. That's just, I don't, I find that if we get off into fear, we miss how thoughtless and inconsiderate I can be. Does that kind of make sense? So I do fear completely different. So I'm not necessarily doing it in this fourth column because I, I don't mind you saying I had fear here, but that's about all I'm willing to do. Let's take that into a fear inventory, just so you know. It says, um, Mrs. Jones, the employer and the wife, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. We have that 1935 dictionary at PPG, and uh, Charlie just one day said, hey, you know, what's shot say in the dictionary? Wait till you see the definition. It's woven, it's a, it's a type of material expression. Woven with warped and weft thread, causing the fabric to take on a different appearance based on the viewpoint of the observer. I know. We had a Cheech and Chong moment. We all went. Whoa. So what that's saying is, you know, have you ever seen those outfits that are purple, but if you turn, they're blue based on the light? So this fear, right, it's this corroding thread. So if I'm looking at it that I'm afraid I'm not going to get the job, it shows it to me one way. Then I get the job and I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. Now I see the fear a different way. So do you see that this is why fear is so, so damaging. I think I told most of you guys, or if you've heard our CDs before, you know the story of when my husband passed away. Unfortunately, he went back out after his brain tumor that was benign, uh, which was nothing short of uh, just unbelievable experience. We were, he was going to live. We were going to make it. And, uh, but he was never going to be able to work another day in his life. All of this horrific stuff. It was very, very challenging for six years. He ended up going back out and then died of a heroin overdose 
Yeah, in 2003, we were married 20 years. It was just devastating. And, and I, just, I still, to this day, just get blown away when I look back at that past of my life. But, you know, I, I've grown from it, and, and I really believe that Joe would be here had he met Mark Houston, but that didn't happen. I don't dwell in that area. It's just what it was. But I knew he was a very sick man, and I had taken an insurance policy out on him because that's what we do. We grow up and become responsible. And I told him, I said, Joe, look, I don't know where we're going, but you got to have some insurance, man. This doesn't look like he's going to live a long life. And we got a universal plan. They're really expensive. And uh, it was a, a very nice plan. And uh, sure enough, he died six weeks before the two-year mark of that plan being in, you know, play, which they always put that under probate or, you know, probate whatever they call that word, and where they're going to examine it to be sure that you hadn't killed yourself or whatever. And so they put it in this, and I'm, I'm going, I told the guy, I said, what are you doing? And the, the insurance guy, and he goes, man, this is, this, if he was killed in a car accident, we'd still do the same thing. So they take this, and they start really digging it apart, and it looks like I'm not going to get this money. And, and I don't know about you guys, but if you've been in the darkness for a while, you start going, Really? This too? Am I in the right room of people? Where you just sit back and you go, oh my God, it just can't get any worse. And it would. It was, and, and I'm in complete untreated alcoholism. So I am pissed. I'm the kind of girl who goes through life going, just try to pick on me. You know, I am really not doing well. And the guy goes, ma'am, it looks like he had gone to get some drug uh, help and da-da-da-da. And I said, that, that is just not true. It didn't happen that way. And so long story short, I managed to get it. Now, I, am, I have the four horsemen in bed with me. If you've ever been in that level of 3 o'clock in the morning, eyes ping wide open, you're sweating. You're just like, oh, my God, I'm not doing well at all. And the next thing you know, I am just, I can't believe the guy said, you're getting the check tomorrow. They send it certified mail. I go to pick it up. So I'm waking up all through the night for weeks looking like I'm not going to get this check. The minute I get the check, I know right where I'm sitting. I take the envelope. I cut it open like this. I don't even get the check out. I just pull it back to see if it is the right amount, and it is. And I go instantly into fear that I'm irresponsible with cash, and I'm going to spend every penny of this. Do you see what I mean? The viewpoint of the observer. I never skipped a beat. I never went and, you know, thrilled to death that I got the check. It went boom, boom. And that's what fear will do. So that's why identifying fear is a part of the work, but it's about that much of the work. Because the fear is constantly changing. It's constantly moving. It is a corroding thread, evil and corroding thread. That's why you must watch for it. And when we get into how to do this fear inventory, I encourage you to write a fear inventory at least twice a week in your evening review. Start to really identify how gripped by fear you really are. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Now, listen to what it does. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Can you see the purpose for a 10th step where you can, remember, you know, the 10th the, uh, step I did with Marty in the, in the doctor's office? I mean, I was sitting there like this. Charlie's the one with possible throat cancer. I've got zero compassion. 
I am so pissed because I'm so driven by fear that he's not going to tell him the truth. He's going to get sick. And let's not, let's not lose sight of this. I'm going to have to take care of him. Oh, I'd love to say that I'm going to lose him. I'm going to have to take care of him. That's how self-centered I am. When, remember when Joe got diagnosed? I know a bunch of y'all have heard the CDs when he got diagnosed with the brain tumor and I was driving the school bus, you know, and I was expecting to drive that school bus for 14 days. Turned out to be three years. And, uh, sorry about that. And uh, when he got diagnosed and that doctor came in and told us that he had a brain tumor, my first thought was that I'm going to be driving this damn school bus forever. See, I wouldn't act on that or say that. But it is the truth of where my self-centered mind goes. See, that's what we're watching for. Okay, so now flip the page. And that is going to go, that that alarm is going to go off here in a minute. I hit snooze. Uh, It says it should, I know, sorry about that. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classified with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We, that, that's a very interesting one because what it's trying to tell me is that most of us on our deathbed wouldn't be afraid of what we did. We'd be afraid of what we never did. Fear robs you of doing so much. It robs you of, of getting out of a really sick relationship. It robs you of leaving a really sick job. It robs you of ever getting in a good relationship. It robs you of being at a really great job. Following your career, following your dreams is what God wants you to do. I've been talking to people about this. By the time we get to the 11th step, it's going to be writing this chapter of your life that is awesome. I mean, really, you and God in this intimate, personal relationship that you're going to sit there with pen and paper writing this love letter to God that's just like amazing life that you have. People want to feel it before they have it. That will never happen. In early sobriety, Joe said to me, my husband that passed, said uh, he had six years. Remember, I had 10 minutes, and I, you know, chased him into AA, and, and I'd sit at his feet while he'd read me the big book, and it was really a fabulous, fabulous relationship. But when, I am a slob. I am, if, if you've noticed, I mean, my, my whole area over here is just, I'm just messy, messy, messy. I take clothes off. I leave them right where I took them off. I have, Charlie is immaculate. You know, I am messy. Thank God he does not put that in my face. He just said, oh, God dang, here she goes again. Little, little, you know, uh, what's the little thing on the roadrunner? The Tasmanian devil through the house. <laughs> right? Messing up everything. And uh, Joe would look at me and go, um, honey, are you waiting to want to clean the house? And I thought, I was early sobriety. You know, some of those one-liners stick with you forever. And I go, yeah, yeah, I am. And he goes, well, you know, it doesn't really work that way. You got to clean the house, and then you feel good. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. And I swear, I have applied that to so many things in life. You know, going to the gym. Most people expect, you know, think that, you know, an athlete would want to go to the gym all the time. I I, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm assuming, Dave, you really weren't looking at getting up at 6 a.m., you know. But we go do it anyway because that's what we do. And so this is what we're talking about, this, this ability and need to be changed. The fear should, it, it should be clashed with um, stealing because it robs you. If you want to look different, 
then ask God for help and do it. God can move mountains, but you got to bring the shovel, okay? Don't think that God's going to do it all. He's got to have your participation. He doesn't need your permission. This is all important stuff. Okay, so now when it says, when we reviewed our fears thoroughly, we put them on paper. Even though we had no resentment in connection with them, we asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-management, self-will, call it whatever you want. That's what it's talking about. Self-reliance was good as far as it went. Very important line. See, my self-reliance will convince me that this can happen. But it doesn't go far enough. It does not take care of the fear problem. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't really uh, fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there's a better way we think so, for we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than finite self. We're in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do so as he thinks. He would have us and humbly rely on him. He enables us to match calamity with serenity. Now, this inventory, and like I said, you can, uh, we've been taking pictures of it, which is a really good idea to put on your phone. This particular inventory, I look at it as a four-column inventory. This is all new for the way I used to do fear, but this one, okay, snooze. Oh, I did the same thing again, didn't I? Damn it! Turn it! I swear, technology. My kids just go, oh, mom. Mom, you're killing me. You're killing me. Or this. Oh, okay. So the, I do now a four-column fear inventory. Column one is the fear and why I have it. Right? Because that's what it's asking me. Column two is the truth. In this column is your reality instead of your perception about it. Seeking the truth, we reviewed our fears thoroughly and put them on paper. This is straight out of the book. The third column is our self-will. This is the column that's going to blow you away. When you put pen to paper, be prepared for God to speak straight through you. Straight through you through that pen. There's so much to be said about spirituality. I swear, so many people are about these apps and typing. and It, it is pen to paper. Darn it. I don't care how simple technology makes it. It is pen to flipping paper. I'm assuming somebody over here is not doing it that way. Okay. Okay, there you are. And let me, let me tell you, my, my sponsor is a court reporter and, you know, high criminal court. And she says, Katie, there are, it's proven that when you type, you type as fast as you think. But when you write, you got to slow it all down. There's a real reason for it. And there's a new 10 and 11 app out there. Hey, man, if it gets you to start doing it, fine. But that 11th step was never designed to be sent to people. That's something that everybody's doing. You're missing a huge piece of spiritual work. That 11th step's between you and God, period. It says, is there something I've left out that I should have shared with somebody else? Well, that you can take out and share, but not the whole darn thing. Uh, we, miss, we miss trying to make a relationship with the Creator. We want it to be human aid so bad. I get it. I want skin and bone. I want somebody to go, no, Katie, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. But you don't get that. This is intuitive. 
And so then this self-will column is going to blow you away. Didn't we have the fear because self-reliance failed us? In this column, list the ways you show up in order to avoid the fear or prevent the fear from coming true in your life. Wait till you see that that self-reliance makes the fear come true. Your biggest fear happens. Why? Because you made it happen. You went into self-reliance instead of God-reliance. God, 99% of the time, tells you to do nothing. <laughs> Damn it. We don't do that well. Say somebody just really upsets you. Do nothing. Don't go gossip. Don't do nothing. You know, you get to tell your sponsor. That's it. And my, my deal on 10 Steps, and Amy, and Amy will love this one, because if you call me, and, get, and Cody too, if you call me with a 10 step and you lay out what happened, you are to do nothing till you hear back from me. I know. That's almost like when the street lights go out, you better get home. That's that same thing. As you know, you go, oh my God, she still hasn't called. It's been seven hours. And it's like, do nothing. And it's amazing how it works out. And I don't have an amends to make. I don't have to go clean up my mess. Nothing. And then God's will, the fourth column, we think there's a better way, trusting and relying upon God, taking actions that are in line with God's will instead of our own. In this column, list the ways you think God would have you do and experience instead of how you typically show up. In other words, what's basically the opposite of your knee-jerk reaction? And I'm telling you, this fear inventory has changed my perspective. I actually even did it with my daughter. She's not one of us. She's an Al-Anon, if anything. And uh, she is just a worry war, you know, dots the I's, crosses the T's, doesn't color outside the line, drives the speed limit, you know. <sighs> and that came from my loin. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh my God, how did that happen? But she is amazing. And she's scared to death of everything. And I said, honey, would you do this and, and let's, you know, let me go over it with you? And she said, sure, mom. It was amazing. She's like, I'm starting to write that fear inventory a ton. I think it's a great 11 step too, okay? So now we've seen the fear. Now let's go to sex so we can get the heck out of this chapter. Now the sex is now listen to what it says about the sex inventory. It's, it's pretty flippin' remarkable. Okay, so page 69, now it's talking about sex. It says, oh, well, bottom of page 68, now about sex. Many of us need an overhauling here. Now, overhaul means to examine thoroughly. And let me tell you what, we are screwed up people in the sex arena. Okay, I swear, if you went into, say, the PTA or, or the, uh, the Junior League or something like that, you'd say, how many of y'all are married? Three-fourths of the room raised their hand. Not in our, our crowd. It's about 12. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. And then, and then we want to give great advice on staying married when we can't personally do it ourselves. Mm. It says... Um, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track here. We find human opinions running to extremes, right? Complete wild insects or none at all, right? One extreme to another. And it's, it's very, very controversial. Now, come over here, and it says that um, midway down on page 69, 
it says about, about nine lines down, we want to stay out of the controversy. We don't want to be the arbiter of anybody's sex conduct. Now, let me tell you, that gets very muddy. What it's trying to say is, if you come to me and you're having serious sexual problems, meaning you can't date, you know, remember, this, this means sex means relationship. It doesn't always mean the act of sex. Are you with me on that? It's relationship problems. So if you're having continual same relationship problems, I'm going to start getting involved in your sex life. I'm going to start giving you limitations. I had one girl that was a extremely attractive, uh, 48, 51-year-old, right, in those four years, very attractive woman. Uh, personally, that's a tough window to be single in uh you know, it's hard to meet people. They, everybody's got a ton of baggage. And since she was attractive, she could get active quickly. And uh, you following me. And I told her, I said, that, surely that's got to be hard on your self-worth, you know, just laying it out like that. Uh, you know, it, it, when, when you're in the clubs and you're drinking, and, and it's, 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 it's kind of a game. But when you're sober and trying to walk a spiritual path, it's kind of awkward. So I told her, I said, what would happen if you, you know, put, you, you keep putting the cart before the horse. I said, what would happen if you would date these people for a little while, and let's say wait 30 days for you roll in the hay? And I swear she was like, What? I go, yeah, 30 days. Let's try it. We started with like a week and then two weeks, and then we, you know, got it out there. And then before you know it, oh, my God, she was waiting 90 days. 90 days. That's a big deal. And uh, she said, my God, I don't even want to kiss them anymore. She goes, I'm done. And she said, the breakup's like that because you haven't gotten intimate. You see, we put the cart before the horse. And once we do that, when we break up, we just want to, you know, it's like, it's just so emotional. It's like, well, you, you gave one of the greatest gifts God's given us is our sex powers. And you used it so selfishly. Now, don't, don't lose sight of. You don't have the power to say no either. Lack of power is our dilemma on everything. If you spend money, uh, you know, like it's water, you're not going to just stop tomorrow because Katie said so. If you want to become a responsible individual with money and sex, you better take these into your evening review, watch throughout the day in your 10th step, morning prayer and meditation, stay heightenedly aware of these and mean business. It's a six step issue, it, but we're doing it in the 10th step. So that if you really want to change who you are, it's not going to happen in a week. This is intense work, constantly willing to narrow your life down to 24 hours because that's all you got. You don't go past that. It's all you got. And I'm telling you, it, it is amazing what happens. These, so I will get involved in the sexual arena. Now, I'll tell you, there's only a, when I sponsor somebody, I have two, um, um, I, I'm just gone blank on the word, two limitations that I'm willing to do. If you're, if you're um, active in both camps, you got to pick a camp. Because I can't, I can't do that. I can't be, you're in this camp, and then the next thing you know, you're in this camp, and you're in this camp, and then you're in this camp. You will wear me out, okay? So I tell you, and, and if you don't like that, then you don't have to have me sponsor you. That's totally fine. But I just, you got to pick a camp. And uh, especially with this younger generation, they're in every camp. Oh, my God. What Kool-Aid did you guys drink? Dude. 
geez, Louise. I mean, my generation danced with women. That was our big deal is we didn't wait for you boys. We danced with our girlfriends, you know. But the thought of making out with her on the dance floor, I don't get it. So we got that problem. And then the other one is uh, a third person in your marriage. If you're married and you're going to bring, even if you're sing, I mean, dating, if you're going to bring a third party in there, I'm not playing in that camp either. You know, I, I don't even know how to wrap my brain around. I want to reach through the phone and slap you, okay? I am like, you're going to try to make sense out of that? Whatever. So those are my two that I can't play in that arena. And trust me, if you're not sponsoring a lot of people, I, I know you're probably thinking that just can't be. Well, get out there on the firing lines. <laughs> there is some crazy sexual stuff happening. So, back to the, uh, the arbitrator, right? It says, uh, we don't want to be the arbiter of anybody's sex conduct. So I kind of gave you the understanding of that. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Now, here it is. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Now, remember, the inventory is not about everybody you slept with. If you had consensual sex with somebody... You don't need to go back and basically say, hey, I found Jesus, and I'm really sorry that I had sex with you then. You know, we're not looking for that. We're consensual. Two adults having consensual sex, there was no harm done. Now, if that individual's married, well, there was harm done. But let me tell you, don't go running out there making an amends for that either. That's a really dicey area to go in. And I don't have time to go deeper into that, but you need to have verified that amends deeply. And I also encourage you, if you're in a relationship where you've broken up, say you were with somebody for, oh, two years, and you broke up, I encourage you not to go back and make that amends either, because you'll end up in the hay every time, every time, every time, every time. Did I say that? <laughs> I have yet to have one person walk away from that amends and not have slept with them that night. It was just so emotional. <laughs> There you go. And then there's that. And uh, so I encourage you to wait at least a year. And if anything, you send them a letter, right? This is not, you know, this, uh, now that we're electronically connected, I don't think it's an email. Write a real letter. Okay, so now it says, <clears throat> where had we been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate? Now, let me tell you, you can see how this can become a conduct inventory, can't you? That you can see that this is a good conduct about how have you shown up as a neighbor? Have you been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? The same thing applies, guys, so you can remove that word sex and look at relationships with others. But we're, we're focusing on sex. Uh, those are not just yes or no questions. They, they, where were you selfish? Where were you dishonest? Where were you inconsiderate? If you're doing any inventory form that's just a check mark, oh, you're cutting yourself so short. Whom had we hurt? Now, remember, in relationships, sometimes you hurt the children of the other person. Sometimes, I've seen sponsees before, and this is a tough one. They get so involved in that particular person's family, get involved with the mother, get involved with the children, and they just hurt everybody. And, and I even had one girl in the inventory, she goes, I, don't, I really don't even like him. And I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. You don't like the guy that you're dating, but you love his family. Gosh, what's going to go wrong here? 
do you see that, you know, and I tell you, it was really, it's really challenging to come to that. It says, um, did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? Now, let me tell you, if you're in a marriage or a relationship right now, the toughest thing in the world is our electronic devices. And, um, and let me tell you, they, there's tremendous harm going on out there with pornography and everything. And, and I, uh, Charlie can touch that more than I can, but it's, it's really uh, deeply unfortunate. So, and the harm you're doing to others, if that's something that you just, you know, comfortably feel it's okay, I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, you are. You're hurting a lot of people. So, if you, your phone rings and your significant other is um, cautiously aware of your little bit dark side, and you do this. That right there can do it. You know what I mean? I walk in the room, and, you know, if Charlie's looking at his phone, all of a sudden he goes, yeah. <laughs> what? You know what I mean? So we have to watch small moves like that. You don't have to go, hey, I just want you to know who I'm talking to and what's going on. You know what I mean? But it's just, it's just not necessary. It's really important. We are a group of people who are not strongly trustworthy. You know what I mean? I mean, I'd love to say we are, but we're, we're not. And we can use our sex powers just, you know, I used to say that we'll, uh, especially a woman, oh my God, the way she can use her sex powers. It's like, okay, I'm a single woman. There's a guy at my home group. He's got a pickup truck. I really don't like the guy very much, but I'll go ahead and flirt a little bit with him just long enough to use his pickup truck so that we can move my stuff and then I'll drop him into grease. Okay. No, nobody's getting laid here, but that's what we're doing. And uh, now he has not got a clue because as Charlie likes to say, he's in the ether. You know, he's like, We women are just terrible, just terrible. But we use those powers because we, we uh, know how to use them. You know, we are not lily white when we come in here. Where were we at fault? Once again, we're listing this stuff so we can really examine it. What should we have done instead? Remember, that answer to that question is not, I shouldn't have ever dated them. That is not what we're looking at. What should we have done instead? I'd like to believe that I'm going to spiritually be in a different place in life. I'm going to ask that God give me the power to have integrity and dignity and respect when I go into my next relationship. I always tell people, I, I, I got a couple of my girls, I finally got them on Match.com. I'm like, God Almighty, date. For God's sakes, you're not even dating. You know, you go on Match.com, at least it's going to give you some experience. And then they call me and, and one of them said, oh my God, this guy was so sexual right out of the gate at the coffee shop, right? And I told her at that point, I'd have looked at him and said, oh, dude, goodbye. That's what I would say. I'm not going to sit there and listen to that. You know, and, and she, she is learning how to say, she's the ego turned inward. She's, a learning, she's learning how to speak up now. And then my personality has to learn how to be quiet. I have a very loud quiet. I'll show you. I mean, you know... You, you, the room gets an uncomfortable feel, you know. <laughs> so then it says, it, it's going to ask me to do a sane and sound ideal, right? This sane and sound ideal is not for Mr. Perfect. This sane and sound ideal is how I'm going to show up in the relationship. What The person I want to be, everyone in this room wants to have integrity, 
dignity, honor, and respect. These are four fabulous qualities to have in an individual. And when you have it, your eyes are brighter. You can look the world in the eyes. You know, there, there is, um, like I said about the pornography, uh, there's so much pornography out there. And I'm telling you, we act like it's no big deal. It's a very big deal. I can be involved. I can be standing there with, with a man that's been watching too much porn, and I can tell. They can't, they can't even be in a conversation. They are so riddled with uh, visual. And uh, I was at the gym one day, and I saw somebody I hadn't seen in a long time, this chick, and I ran over there to her, and I'm like, oh, my God, Michelle, it's been so long. You know how girls are. They're, <laughs> and uh, this guy comes up, and he goes, oh, my God, for a minute there, I thought you were going to make out. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, buddy, you're watching too much porn, okay? <laughs> and I swear to God, he was like, you're the one who started it, not me. Um, so you know what I mean, but it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to get. We, we are, and I tell people, be very careful of, of you know, binge watching television. Before you know it, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, I love Bill Burr, the comedian, love him. Well, before you know it, he's from the Boston area. Oh my God, this guy just, I just think he's so darn funny. The next thing you know, I sound like him. I mean, I'm, I'm doing verbiage of his. And I, had, I just realized I had to quit watching him because that's what we do. Charlie was watching uh, Breaking Bad. And, oh, my God, like for about the ninth time. And uh, everywhere we'd walk in, he goes, you know, I could do a meth lab here, Kate. Yeah, this is really per perfect, perfect place for a meth lab. I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, but, you know, the, there, you just have to be very careful, very, very careful. Watch yourself. Just try not to binge watch something. Just one episode. Turn it off. Wait a whole week. Huh, like we used to. Shocking. There's a lot to be said about that experience. Um, so this sane and sound is based on my selfish behavior. How I could become a better person through God's help. Now here is the best line in the sex inventory. And remember, we're not talking the physical act of sex. Don't, don't lose sight of that word. If sex is troublesome, having too much or not having enough, let's not forget that. Throw yourself harder into working with others. That works when everything else fails. And I am not kidding you, everything else fails. When, if you're in a breakup, I mean, throw yourself into working with others. Go to a newcomer meeting. People say, well, I don't have any sponsees. Well, what the heck? How do you not have sponsees? Go to a treatment center. Go to a newcomer meeting. You know, walk up to a newcomer and look at them and go, hey, listen, how long are you sober? Four days. Wow, congratulations. You got anybody taking you through the steps? No, I go, I will. Okay, so come on over here. Yeah, yeah, you're not waiting for them to find someone that they like. Most people are just walking. They go, okay. <laughs> Sit them down right then. I love when I hear somebody in a meeting really resentful. And you can tell, you, you can find people in meetings that are not laughing when everybody else is laughing. Look around for that guy. Or if they're just angry as can be in a meeting. And after the meeting's over, I go, hey, man, have you got a few minutes? Sure. We take them, I take them outside, sit down with them, and I do an inventory right then and there. We don't have to write it down. I go, so tell me what's going on. They tell me I got column two. Well, let's look at how that affects your, your self-esteem, your, your ambitions, your pride. 
And then before you know it, man, we've gotten them all the way through the inventory process. Took about 20 minutes, and they're like, oh, my God. I didn't have to get permission from their sponsor. You know, people say, I I don't sponsor them. This is what we are. We are supposed to be helping others, period. This is my responsibility to help you. I'd hope somebody would do that for me. And I think, too, I only have about two more minutes, and then we're going to take a break. One of the things that I think most people don't think that they are qualified to sponsor, have you had a spiritual awakening? If the answer is yes, go to it. And, and run it all past your sponsor. This is what they said. I said this, and then they did this. And then the, my sponsees all call me and go, Kate, I got this p- position. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. This is what I said. I go, you know, that's good. You could also enhance it by using this or that. I'm just giving you suggestions. I call Lorenz. I call my sponsor. Every time I have a hiccup that I'm not 100% sure of what I should do, especially in the amends process, oh, my God. Don't just assume you know what to do. That one is so important that you verify. Verify, verify, verify. I'll take an amend sometimes and run it past two people. You know, what do you think they should do in this situation? And when we're making an amends in the sex arena, and I'll end on this one, I believe, and this is strictly my opinion, based on experience, but my opinion, if you have had infidelity in your relationship, and the other person does not know about it. They may, be, they may think they have some information, but they don't know. Unless they caught you butt naked, deny it. I'm, I'm telling you. I, I've done extensive research on this. And uh, not in my relationship, honey. <laughs> but, and you can ask women, and I am a woman, we will pelt you and break you down. Until you tell us, and then you will pay for the rest of your life. (laughs) Unless you're an Al-Anon, and then you seem to forgive. Uh, Alcoholic women don't do so much. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that that's, that's strongly my belief. And uh, you can do with it whatever you want, but I'm a huge fan of believing that. And I've seen it go my way much better than I've seen it go the other way. And we'll take a break, guys. Thanks.